The eighth principle. Uh, the ninth. We are the ninth principle. Okay. The ninth principle is that the Torah of Moshe will never be nullified. There will never come another Torah aside from this. There will be no additions to this nor deletions from it, neither in its text nor in its explanation. Okay, now, thus we're referring to both the, the actual text of the five books of Moses. There's not going to be an updated version of this, and nor are we going to have any updated version of the oral Torah. Small caveat on that point, I'll come back to in a moment. And thus we are commanded, do not add to it or detract from it. We've already explained what is necessary regarding this fundamental principle in the introduction to this text, which this again is a commentary on the Mishnah. So in the introduction of the Rambam's commentary on the Mishnah, which I highly recommend everyone read, it has been translated into English. Um, if you would really like to know more fully about Torah and the oral Torah and prophecy and how all these things fit together, the Rambam's introduction to the Mish- this commentary on the Mishnah is a highly recommended reading. Um, not to be confused with his introduction to his Lachat Code, which is on similar themes but much more abbreviated. Okay. Now, uh, first a note about these um, changes in text or its explanation. Um, the text is pretty straightforward. There's never going to, right, he's saying that this text, there's no updating, there's no edited version, there's no revised version, there's no second edition. Okay. It's actually funny. This, this actual Chumash, the Art Scroll Stone Chumash, edition Chumash, um, they one time actually had a, uh, a sale that of um, leather-bound copies of it. And in the advertisement, it said that the first 500 orders will be signed by the author. <laughs> Which I, I think what they meant to say is that it was going to be signed by the general editors. But <laughs> um, something bad effect. But no, so there is no, there's no revised edition. Now, in terms of the explanation, in terms of the explanation, um, he is, the, the Rambam is not saying that there cannot be, first off, just very, very briefly, in the oral Torah, there are two aspects. One is halacha and one is agadat. I want to go through this somewhat quickly. Just I could like, spend a long time on this. Halacha is the stuff we do. We spoke at this beginning, right? And agadat is the stuff we talk about, the ideas, the philosophy, the morality, the spirituality, right? Um, he's referring to the halacha, the actual understanding of the verses in terms of what they demand us to do and not do, say not to say, believe and not believe, etc. But he's also not saying that halacha can never change. What he's saying is that anything that Moshe was told by God will not change. Words, if Moshe was told this is how the mitzvah should be done, then that will be how we do the mitzvah forever. If Moshe was told, this is the system or process you should use to determine the halacha, then that will always be the system process we use. Okay? So the Ram himself is actually of the opinion that many halachas can change because those halachas are derived using the methodology God gave Moshe rather than the actual specific law was given to Moshe. Okay? So I'm going to give you um, an example. Okay? There's... There are several things in the Torah where there are disputes in the Talmud as to whether the Torah is granting you permission to do something or obligating you to do something, okay? Now, sometimes it's very clear one way, sometimes it's very clear the other. Sometimes it's just not clear from the biblical text, and we don't have a tradition going back to Moshe. 
what exactly God is saying. And so the Talmudic sages will analyze that using special principles to derive whether they understand this as permission or obligation. Okay? Um, I'm not going to give examples because many of the examples are actually controversial and we could just get sidetracked on them. But the principle makes sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. So now, the Rambam's view is, and he rules this quite explicitly, is that when we had the high court, the Sanhedrin, they would vote on the matter. A later Sanhedrin, if, the, if they, the majority of those sages thought that the other derivation made more sense to them, they could re-vote on the issue and change the halacha. And that's not because we're, cha- there's not because we're, we're, we're amending what God gave to Moshe, but because this specific law wasn't given to Moshe, rather, what was given to Moshe was the method, the procedures. Okay, does this make sense? Okay. So, it, it, because otherwise you end up in this, uh, this kind of thing, like when you're a little kid, you think that everything was done exactly the same, and like, you know, Moshe must have worn a strimo or whatever. Like, it, no, like, things can change, but the core bedrock of the oral Torah, and I mean specifically in terms of the halachic meaning of things and the halachic process of things that was transmitted by God to Moshe, that will never be changed. Okay? Good? Okay, now, here we're going to get controversial. Okay? There was a great rabbi named Rabbi Yosef Albo. Rabbi Yosef Albo wrote a book called The Ikarim, or Ikrim if you're an Ashkenazi. And that means the principles. And it is a critique of the Rambam's 13 principles. Um, he is the one who I mentioned at the beginning of this series of classes. There's really only three fundamental principles, the existence of God, revelation, and reward and punishment. He has a very serious issue with this principle. Now, in order to understand that, we need to differentiate between things which are technical and things that are substantive. Everybody agrees, all right? Everybody, I mean within the realm of, of Judaism, that there's no such thing as updating the Torah, amending the Torah, editing the Torah, not the written Torah and not the oral Torah. Again, with those caveats that I laid out. That's, that, that, there's no disagreement about that. But the question here is, is that a technical issue or is that a substantive issue? So let's say for a minute, let's say we wanted to amend the Torah. How do we go about doing it? Well, we're gonna have a problem, right? Because well, we couldn't just decide on our own we want to amend the Torah. What makes us human beings more authoritative than God, right? Okay, so, okay, well, well, so we couldn't decide to amend the Torah or update the Torah. Well, God could, right? Well, how would God go about doing that? Send a prophet. Ah, send a prophet. Except, except we have a lachic rule in the Torah that a prophet is not allowed to add or subtract to the mitzvahs. Oh. So since the rules of the Torah that outline under what conditions we obey a prophet preclude the prophet from adding or subtracting to mitzvahs or changing their interpretations. God right? could just change the book itself. Well, as a general, I just want to be clear about something. There's a, there's, a, there's a presumption throughout all of Jewish theology. It becomes much more clear in the medieval era when, when these things become more explicitly talked about in philosophical terms that God does not just do things willy-nilly. God doesn't just like magically change things. Okay. Um, I'll give you the most concrete example from the Talmud um, is that you're not allowed to pray that the past should be different than what actually happened. 
Because there's a like, if, so. However, miracles are understood. They're understood as having a kind of structure and a system and a method to them. Okay. So, yeah. If you're just closing your eyes and imagine just God changing things because He's God, well, that's for whatever reason we're not going to go into it right now. But that's not a that's not a position within Judaism. Okay. So now, how would God go about changing the Torah? So you see, there's a, there's a technical problem. He couldn't change. The, he couldn't change, right? Well, I'm going to come back. To, I'm going to come back to if there's a way out of this problem. But if, if that's the approach that you're taking, then you're not saying that in principle, substantively, there could never be an update, an amendment to the Torah. We're just saying that, practically speaking, there's no real way to achieve that. Once we have accepted the revelation at Sinai. As binding, everything has to be within the structure that we have there, and that structure doesn't allow us to change the Torah. It doesn't allow a prophet to change the Torah, and so you're kind of stuck. So in practice, anyone who believes in the revelation at Sinai ends up falling into a belief that this is the eternal Torah and it's not going to change. There will be no updates, amendments, etc., right? But does that make it a core substantive belief in Judaism? It's a technical outcome of certain interesting like, laws about the way prophecy works, right? And the limits of, 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 of communal and rabbinic authority over how we understand the text. Okay, but substantively speaking, why, why couldn't God change the Torah? Let's go further. Has God ever changed his commandments? And Rabbi Yosef Albo does in fact show that if you look at the biblical text, we do find that God changes the commandments. Okay? So the idea that a God-given commandment can never be changed, is never subject to revision, just is not true from the biblical text. He says, yes, the Rambam Maimonides is right. You cannot change it. You cannot add. You cannot subtract. The, the Talmudic formulation for a prophet is, a prophet may not add anything novel into the practice of Judaism at least as, as an agent of God. He, he do so as a rabbinic figure within the scope of what a rabbi can do. But we do see in the biblical story that God changed the laws. Okay. And not that just God changed the laws on, an, on, on, a, on a momentary basis, because we do, for instance, have a principle that a prophet can suspend any law in the Torah on a temporary basis um, as a, uh, if God tells him to do so, as long as it's not idolatry. So anything the Torah prohibits or obligates if someone is a validated prophet, come and say, today, that, that halacha, that law, that mitzvah is not in place. Okay? But that's not an amendment to the Torah. That's not an update to the Torah. That's not a revision of the Torah. Right? That's just spending something on a temporary basis. But we actually find genuine revision of God's rules. Okay? Now, he picks a very interesting example. And because we decided to be um, controversial and emotionally difficult today, this will be our first emotionally difficult issue of many. Okay. So there's the story of Cain and Abel. Please raise your hand if you are passingly familiar with the story of Cain and Abel. Okay, so that's everybody. Every, everyone raised their hand? You raised your hand? Okay, fine. I, I just realized afterwards that I didn't look all the way in that corner. Okay. Now, if you actually open up the biblical text and you read the story of Cain and Abel, like most biblical stories, it is very, very terse. And your knowledge of the story has probably been colored by someone's explanation. If you've heard it in a Jewish context, you have probably heard it, more or less following how Rashi explains it. 
maybe a detail here or there is not exactly like Rashi, but generally when the story is told, when the story is explained, as is often the case, um, Rashi is kind of the go-to starting way of understanding what the biblical text means. You think you, do you guys have a class on Rashi's commentary? Some of, no? Okay. Well, you should. You should study Rashi's commentary. Okay. However, Rashi does not have a monopoly on biblical exegesis, on explaining the biblical text. Okay. In other words, Rashi is kind of the go-to starting point. But from there, you, there's so many different options and so many different perspectives. So we're going to go over the story of Cain and Abel. Um, according to Rabbi Yosef Albo, okay, who was, um, lived in the late Middle Ages in, in Spain. And he says like this, God created Adam. And although it says that Adam had many children, only three of his children are mentioned by name. There is Cain, or in English, Cain. There is Hevel, in English, Abel. Anyone know the third? They're not mentioned by name. Close. Chase, or Seth, in English. Okay, now, Cain and Hevel, Cain and Abel, they are, they are born right away, whatever right away means. And Chase is born much later. Right. The end, at the end of the Torah reading of Bereshus, um, the, the, the first weekly Torah reading, at the end, it mentions all of the lineages to get all the way um, to, Noah. to Noah. And there is when it actually mentions Shays. And it really doesn't mention very much about him, by the way. <laughs> it mentions one thing, which we're going to come back to. So, what do we know about the character of Cain? Of Cain? is that he was a farmer. He worked the land. What do we know about Hevel, about Abel? He was a shepherd. What do we know about Shace, about Seth? That he was in the likeness of his father. The only one that says that he, he was in the likeness and the tselem in the form of his father was Shace. Now, the likeness, the form of Adam is what? Anyone know? What does the Torah describe Adam's likeness as? Like the form of God. So Adam, Adam is in the form of God and Shays is in the form of Adam, meaning that he's only being described as being in the image of God. From here we can infer the other two. Not. We're not in the image of God, whatever that means. Okay. okay? So we have a farmer who plants, a shepherd, 10 sheep, and someone in the image of God. Good? These three sons of Adam, they are archetypes for all moral philosophy that human beings ever develop for all time. Every moral philosophy that any human being ever comes up with will fit largely under one of these three. What was the moral philosophy of Cain? The moral philosophy of Cain is more or less what we would call nowadays utilitarianism. The idea that Suffering is bad, well-being is good, and we should minimize suffering and maximize well-being as much as possible. What makes something bad? It hurts others or oneself. What makes something good? It removes suffering or brings pleasure or well-being. And that is how you should measure the rightness or wrongness of any course of action. Good? 
What was Hevel's philosophy? We're going to come back to seeing how you see this in the biblical text. What was Hevel's moral philosophy? What makes something right? Human beings are capable of achievement. We can go to the moon. We can develop calculus. We can create symphonies, right? We can achieve things. And when things further human triumph and human achievement, they are good. And when things stifle that or hinder that, they are bad. If it causes pain and suffering on the way to create these achievements, it's worth it. If you avoid pursuing a noble achievement because it's hard and difficult and makes life unpleasant, you have debased yourself. Okay? So if you are, have enough money to just sit around and do nothing all day and enjoy life, okay, and you're not harming anybody and you're just you know, having a pleasant existence, according to Cain, that's perfectly fine. And according to Havel, you're an evil person. Humanism? I, I, don't, I don't know enough that I would say that, that there's a one, one philosophy that I'm, I'm not well versed enough in secular philosophy to say that I feel confident coming up with one okay. word. I'm going to write it. Um, but there's a lot of things like that. For, I mean, like you could, you could take a lot of different philosophical trends yeah. that are often in tension with each other and say, but one thing they seem to agree about is that there's a kind of depth of human potential that needs to be brought out. And they might disagree about what that is and how to do about it. And just, you know, and there's a kind of superiority of human beings over all other forms of life. And we want to strive to achieve the greatest that we can, both as an individuals and as societies and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, so it's not necessarily just society like a communist system or a capitalist system. It's right, yeah, so, so actually, the, yeah, well, so I mean, I, I could spend a lot of time to, to go into like different political theories, how they would line up with different things. Um, but either on the individual or the communal level. You right. So like if, right, for like. I'm bringing like. You, 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 like, like any, any, any piece of music. Yeah? You ever see a movie or read a book about a hero? Yes. Okay. And what? Right. About a hero. Right. Yeah. And there's something. And, and by the way, some often in these stories, the hero, it doesn't work out well for them in the end. Right. Sometimes it does, but sometimes it doesn't. it doesn't, right? Does that make them less of a hero? Less of an admirable person? No. no. So what are you touching on when you're thinking of that as a person to aspire to, to emulate, to, to, to laud as a... You're thinking much more in terms of... You're thinking much more in terms of, of heaven. Because you're thinking, oh, this person is achieving, they've achieved something, they've, they brought something out. Okay. Right, they're trying and stuff, right? Kain is Kain would be much more Kain would be much more um, the, much more that the, the, the you know the heroism, the drama is not an inherently good thing. In fact, think about it. Would you like is think about your most the favorite story, whether it's a book or a movie of a, of, of a hero who has to struggle and triumph, or, and maybe in the end they triumph, but it has a tremendous cost, whatever it is, right? On the one hand, it really speaks to you. But on the other hand, would you really want your life to look like that? <laughs> Think about the day-to-day -day experience of what that looks like. Mm -hmm. It's very unpleasant. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll use one, one concrete example. Um, it's not such a popular thing to say because there's been a kind of a cultural shift. It used to be there was a thing, and one actually European... 
um, I don't know, I don't remember, I don't remember what it was. In like the late 18, early 1900s, he said it's important from time to time to have a war. Why? How do you else do you develop the nobility of human spirit? Get together, we fight some enemies, right? We triumph, we face our cowardice, right? It's an important thing. Okay, so, you know, it happens to be that a bunch of lives get ruined and upended in the process. And he, he thought he was making a very noble statement. Now, nowadays, if you want, you, right, we, nowadays, if you want to justify war, you have to talk about how somehow in the end the calculus is going to be that more people's lives will be saved or yeah. more people, right? No, it's, right. You, 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 it's, you, all yeah. it's all the Cain type of Cain type of mentality, right? The idea that what do you mean? There's something noble about assembling and killing your enemies, right? Overcoming fear, you know, and if that justifies, a, you know, sleeping out in the woods without toilet paper for for five months of freezing to death, so be it, right? But then there's societies which really have the, the opposite kind of strain of thought. One makes for better drama, though. One makes for pleasant living. But you could go on and on about this, okay? What's chase? Chase is that there is God, and God is good, and God is true. And therefore, a person should aspire to emulate God in all of their ways. Okay. In other words, that there is, a, there is a transcendent ideal of goodness that creates the world and gives the world meaning and purpose. And we as human beings have the ability to be miniature versions of that, to, to, okay. to be, right? And by the way, outside of Hasidus, this is actually a very explicitly thing that's taught, the, the, the idea of emulating God. Um, and you learn the deep Jewish theology. In Hasidus, we spoke much more about connecting to God. Yeah. But outside of the Hasidic emphasis, the kind of standard Jewish theology is you don't connect to God. God is too transcendent to connect to. What do you do? You emulate God. And as our sages say, if God is compassionate, you should be compassionate. God is kind, you should be kind. God is just, you should be just. In other words, um, God builds, we should build, right? Be fruitful and multiply, right? The idea is that a human being should, should aspire to be a channel through which the goodness and truth of God is manifest in the world. Okay, that's a very different, now that, that's clearly religious, right? You can't have that. The other two you could kind of ground in kind of a, a human being. This one you have to ground in God. Yeah. Someone raised their hand over. I raised my hand earlier. Okay, yes. Um, I was confused. When you were talking about heroes, Yeah. Um, I pictured super. Heroes. Fine. Okay, so like we're talking about like Spider Man or yeah. something. Right? They I don't understand how aren't isn't their goal to avoid suffering for the process? No, I'm not asking about their goal, I'm asking about them, the person. Think about the person, right? When this Take like your example, Spider-Man. When you, no, when you, when you like read a Spider-Man comic or watch a Spider-Man movie, whatever it is, right, and it touches you and it pulls you, right? Mm -hmm. What is it that's touching you and pulling you is not the ethic of of helping people. What's pulling you and touching you is the sense of carrying a burden alone, the sense of having difficulties, the sense of of helping people who might hate you. In the case of Spider-Man, theme in Spider-Man, right? He's hated and yet he helps the people even though they hate him. They don't know how much he cares about them, right? Aww. Right. The the in Spider Man dealing dealing with a sense of 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 having of having made the wrong decisions and then not being revocable, able to go back. I don't know the backstory. I don't know about Spider Man. Yeah, the whole 
the whole story with his uncle, right? And th- there's a lot, th- and how he deals with that, and then and as the comics become more mature and more developed, like really exploring these themes, that's what makes it, right? And there's this dealing with the human spirit and trying. Now, yes, there is a ethic of helping people, but what makes you look at this person as someone aspirational or someone that 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 on some level, some part of us would like to be is all that stuff. But then if you think, well, do you really want to go through the day-to-day life of what his life is like? And just think about how hard it is to maintain a secret identity. Think of how hard it is to split your life in that way. Think of how hard it is to carry burdens alone, right? Think about it on a day-to-day level, right? And there's a part of us like, well, no, we shouldn't have to do that. We should just make life comfortable and easy for people. And so there's really these two different kinds of, you know, themes or, or, or directions that a person can go and then you could develop a whole theory and a whole philosophy around it and there are many different types and so and, and you could get you could, you could take these themes in very spiritual ways there are certain spiritual practices that are all about removing pain and suffering from your life right that's a kind kind of a spirituality right um, and then there's kind of spiritual practices where like no that, that should be avoided that's, that's a kind of a weakness you want to be confronting the pain you want to face the pain and you want to be strengthened by dealing with the pain, right? That would be much more of a Hevel kind of spiritual practice. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Yeah, okay. Okay, so when God creates, now so, when God creates the, the world, he gives a commandment regarding what people and animals should eat. And he gives the commandment as follows, that animals should eat the plants, the vegetation. Okay. All your knowledge about biology is suspended. We're just dealing with okay. biblical exegesis right now. So you understand, because he's making a point about the biblical text. So plant, animals are supposed to just eat vegetation. But when it comes to people, God actually says you should eat the, the vegetation and the fruits of the trees. Uh-huh. Okay? Oh, so that's a difference. So there's a difference. And the right, general vegetation, but, but human beings are actually told to eat the fruits of the trees. Now, in other words, no one's allowed to eat any kind of meat. No carnivores. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Because, again, this is Revius Vabo's understanding. It's based on Jew, Jewish sources. Eating meat can be very corrupting to the meat eater. It can, and this is the word can, be very bad for one's spiritual and ethical growth to eat meat. Mm-hmm. And therefore, God says, well, you know, why do it? Well, just, just stick to the, uh, the plants, right? Okay. And like nuts, you can eat nuts from trees. Nuts from and then fruit from trees, right? Good. This is according to Rav Shalom Rav Yosef, uh, Rav Yosef, Yosef Abba. Abba. Yeah. So, I mean, th- that actually is in the verse. Those the verse. It does say they'll eat the vegetation and the people eat the plants and the plant, and also the tree, the fruits from the tree. What did Hevel understand from this? Hevel understood God must see animal suffering as morally equivalent with human suffering. That's why you can't heal the animals. And if that's the case, is it proper to use animals for your own benefit? No. No. So therefore, what should he wear as clothing? He'll wear linen clothing. He will grow flax from which he can make linen to wear linen clothes. Or no more so than use humans. As right. You wouldn't, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't make a herd of people and shave their heads to make clothes out of it, would you? Oh, no, I mean for like a beast of burden or you can have humans. Right, right, right. Yeah. No, he would say like, like, you should not, right? In other words, he's basically saying that 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 we have just like human beings can experience pain and suffering animals experience pain and suffering god doesn't want us to kill the animals we're talking about abel 
This is Kayan. Oh, that makes more sense. This is Kayan. Okay, he doesn't so want, he, he doesn't want, God, does, God wants us to treat animals as ethically equivalent okay, to human course. beings, morally equivalent to human beings. Their suffering is important, just like our suffering is important. Yeah. Therefore, we're not allowed to kill them for food. We really shouldn't be using them for our own personal benefits. We wouldn't enslave another human being. You wouldn't use another human being for like their hair to make clothes out of it. So therefore, I'll grow plants and I will use plants to make my clothing. Mm-hmm. So he is a flax farmer. Make sense? Mm-hmm. Hevel said, no, no, no. I'm not this whole, like, God, God doesn't want us to eat meat because he thinks it's bad for us to eat meat for some reason. But he clearly thinks human beings and animals are not morally equivalent. What's my proof? Fruits right, we're allowed to eat fruits. We're allowed to eat this delicious stuff that the animals are not. That's an indication that we're on a superior level. And therefore, the restriction against... Eating meat is limited to whatever God's issue is with eating meat, but otherwise, how should I view animals as subordinate to me, something I should use to my advantage, and therefore I will make my clothes out of wool. Wool. Kabbalistically, the whole wool linen thing ties all the way back to Kain and Hevel, yes. They, they were, yes, what was the wool linen issue? What? Oh, that's just so interesting. Yeah. I never really knew the reason why. Yeah. I don't know if it's, it doesn't say it in the verse explicitly, but it is interesting that, that they, they, yeah, they were wool linen. Anyway. So, now, it comes time to offer, to worship God. We spoke previously about offering sacrifice. I'm not going to go into the importance of offering sacrifice as a form of worship. And Kain has the idea he should offer a sacrifice to God. And so what does he do? He takes some of his flax and he burns it as a sacrifice to God. And I was like, that's a great idea. That's a great idea, Kain. We should worship God through sacrifice. And he takes some of his sheep and he kills them as a sacrifice to God. Now remember, in his worldview, there's nothing wrong with killing animals. God has this issue with eating them, right? But yeah. like, killing animals, they're not, they're not immorally equivalent to us. Of course you can kill them for, for, for a real purpose, other than eating, because God said no, right? Now, but how does Heva look at that? Or sorry, how does Cain look at that? He does not like that. That would seem to look the same thing as human sacrifice, right? Mm-hmm. You're killing an animal? That you're killing a being who's capable of experiencing fear and pain and loss? How could you do that? What? Nothing, nothing could justify that, right? Okay, now which sacrifice does God accept? The animal animal sacrifice. Why? 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 Because, because, God says, look, I don't think Hevel's 100% onto things. He's not, he hasn't figured it out, but he's at least on the right track where he recognizes that human beings are unique and different and morally superior to animals. It's about the fruit. Wait, 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 wait. In other words, his understanding that I don't want people or animals eating meat has nothing to do with their moral equivalence. And that's why I let the human beings eat the fruit and not the animals. He was right about that. Now he took that maybe in the wrong way. It's about human achievement and human excellence, but there's what to work with here. Right. You give a little reward. Like God's like, yeah, yeah, you're on the right track. We, need, we want to work with here. But, but Cain, but Cain, you've debased yourself by seeing yourself as morally equivalent to an animal and an animal is morally equivalent to you. You have precluded ever from achieving the true moral value, which is to emulate God. Because an animal is clearly not God-like. And so I do not accept your sacrifice. Now, how does Cain feel about this? He gets sad, as the verse says, right? And God comes to him. And it says to him, 
it's a very cryptic verse, but it says to him, look, you can change. You don't have to approach the things the way you've been approaching them. It's possible to overcome. Now, you ever, have you ever been rebuked? Yes. And um, often when we're being rebuked, the thing that we hear is not necessarily the thing that was intended. Yes. That's often the case, right? God was saying you need to like abandon that starting position that human beings and animals are fundamentally morally equivalent. That all beings that are capable of feeling pain and suffering or all should be fundamentally treated the same because and say, no, there's a categorical difference. Human beings are intrinsically superior to animals. You need to start, you need to start with that position, like your brother. Like your brother Abel. Like your brother Abel. Okay. But he doesn't hear that. He hears, oh, God likes sadistic violence. <laughs> so he goes and offers a sacrifice. Of his, of his, <laughs> of his brother. He's like, God, you, you owe your cruelty? I have no problem. And he meets his brother in the field and he kills him as a sacrifice to God. He's like, that's not what I meant. That's not what I meant, okay? Now, so Cain, he's like really messed up. Hevel, he's like, as they say, pariv. But he's not that righteous. After all, God didn't intervene to save him, right? And then you have Shace. Shace, later Adam has a son, and that son, he gets it. He says, yes, human beings are intrinsically superior to animals, not because we can achieve amazing things, but because we can emulate the transcendence of God in our lives. And so he and he alone is described as being in the image of Adam, who's in the image of God. Okay? How, what is that? Is, what's that? So first off, by the way, if anyone wants to know, what is the most primary source in Judaism about vegetarian, ethical vegetarianism is this. Oh, so it's not. Okay. So. Um, I wrote that down. I wrote, Cain is the OG vegan. Right, and God. <laughs> now, that, okay, but now, here's the thing. What happens Things just go downhill from there, right? Society just basically becomes what happens when it's about, what happens when it's all about what you, what, what, about feeling good and about minimizing pain and minimizing suffering. It turns out people become very narcissistic and very selfish. And what happens when a society is governed by such an ethic? Ultimately, you have corruption and violence. And eventually God's like, okay, I've had enough. I've had enough. We're starting over. Flood. Flood. He wipes what, that out. Why did, what made, did I miss this? Like, what made the whole world follow utilitarianism? Is there because ethic? Think, oh, think about it for a moment. Think about it for a moment. Yeah, once, once, no, it's not just that it's easy and that it doesn't take effort. There's a, there's a kind of self-absorption built into it. Yeah, totally. And so it easily deteriorates in just like pure narcissism. Yeah. Which is evidenced in many societies, which start developing. Yeah, often develops into kind of a pure narcissism. If, if pe- look, if everybody was ego free, maybe it wouldn't. But people yeah. aren't ego free, and so it often gets corrupted in that way. There's no sense of everything of anything higher than oneself that is imposing demands upon you. Yes. Mm-hmm. you argue that, we, that kind of signifies the innate moral code that we have, and then what you're supposed to do is build upon it. And have- well, the, kind of the reverse. You're supposed to realize that that stems from something higher than yourself. You are sensitive to something higher than yourself. And if that's the case, you should turn to that higher thing for further input. Right. Rather than that becoming the grounding of everything. It's like the foundation you're born with, and then you're, you need to build off of it. You can't, if you just right, you're not, yeah, it, you're, you're, not supposed to, you're not supposed to just be like, oh, I, you know, hurting people is fine, I don't really care. God said no, but I would do it anyway. That, that's not the point. But, but where, if that becomes the thing that you measure things by, ultimately you can come make a statement, I don't enjoy this, this makes me uncomfortable, therefore it's ethically wrong. 
and that, you know, again, if, if nobody had any ego whatsoever, this wouldn't be a problem, but we do, and so that's what turns into, and eventually you end up with a society like, like the pre-flood society, which is horrific. Um, its similarity to many societies throughout history we will not discuss. Now, um, what does God do? He, he floods the world, wipes it clean, starts over. But interestingly, after the flood, you know what God says? To Adam, to, to, to Noah, He's not gonna do that again? eat meat. You can eat meat. Meat, it's fine. You can eat meat. What? Meat is okay. That's, That's the, where you so will get the permission funny. for human beings to eat meat. You can eat meat. Why does God tell him you can eat meat? That that's right, because and this is the thing that the vegans and the, the vegan the vegan philosophers have pointed out, which is true. If you eat meat and you are a self-aware human being, you start need to find some moral justification for why you're killing an animal that can experience pain and suffering, mm-hmm. and that's okay. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you have to see yourself as fundamentally superior to them. Not for throwing it in the garbage. I, I mean, I'm, not, I'm just talking about like, as a general thing. Now, right? That that's a whole other thing. Okay. So the idea is that God permits human beings to eat meat, despite the fact that eating meat can be detrimental to your spiritual growth. But the need of the society to constantly reinforce we are not animals is a greater priority. Now, what do we just see happen? What did God do? He changed the law. Now, what happens? We fast forward a little bit. You have a man named Abraham, Abraham, right? And you have a whole tribe that becomes very devoted to God. Right? And they go through a process of you know, selective breeding and refinement. And eventually God's like, okay, you guys, I think I can, I can explain to you. Certain kinds of eating of animals are potentially beneficial for your spiritual growth and certain ones are not. And then God gives the laws of kosher. Mm. So we see that God's rules about eating animals goes through periodic updates based on the state of humanity. And that makes a lot of logical sense. If God is giving commandments to human beings, where the human beings are holding along their spiritual journey, Mm -hmm. it would make sense that if society or a particular subset of society has advanced to a certain level, then there should be new commandments or revision of commands. And he gives a very powerful analogy for this. You feed a child different things at different stages of development. Infants, if you feed the infants the food of toddlers, it's life-threatening. But God forbid you keep... You keep a, 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 a child on, uh, on breast milk and, and, and formula for their entire childhood, that's also life-threatening, right? And, you know, whatever benefits we might ascribe or not ascribe to drinking alcohol, right? But we certainly don't think it's an appropriate thing to do for toddlers, right? So there's an idea that, like, you know, you progress to things. So obviously God in his infinite wisdom would look at human society and say, oh, this is appropriate. This is not appropriate. And he adjusts accordingly, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. So if that's the case, substantively speaking, does it not make sense to say that the Torah could change? Again, you have this technical problem. How would God go about doing it? But as a matter of theological fund- foundational principles, the Torah could change, right? All that stuff happened in the Torah. Yeah, but, but the point is, if God could do it then, why couldn't God do it now? Again, I'm not asking technically how it would happen, but if human beings got to a level, so he says, so he says, if human beings advanced sufficiently to a particular level of development where other mitzvahs became necessary or certain mitzvahs became no longer needed, is there any reason to think in principle that there couldn't be a revised version of the Torah at that point? No. No. Get technically, how would you go, I can't, how would you go about doing that, right? Simple. And there's no reason to believe, you couldn't do it. Prophet couldn't do it. But that's a technical problem. 
And the Rambam seems to be saying this is like a fundamental principle of the theology that somehow the Torah cannot be changed. And so he's like, I don't understand. Like, where, where, where is this coming from? I mean, Moshe, does this have to do with Moshe? Right, in other words, the Rambam is getting that somehow the communication of God to Moshe has a finality to it. And Revius of Abba saying like, I mean, maybe on some, for some technical reasons, yes, but substantively, I don't see why it has to be that way. Yeah. Um, it's probably one of the most explicit ones. Um, there, there are other things that we do have. For instance, we have a tradition that God that that God originally gave six commandments to Adam, and then a seventh one about the rules for eating animals to Noah. But then we actually have a tradition that God gave more commandments. So He gave the the the, the commandment of the bris circumcision to Abraham. And um, actually, God was adding commandments from the time of Abraham up till they got to Mount Sinai. And so it does seem, and the Ram himself admits this, the Ram actually uses when he describes this in, 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 when he describes this in, in, in his halachic code, he says, until came Moshe, the Torah was completed. As if like the Torah was a final product. Like, well, well, like, that seems like an arbitrary cutoff point. Like, why couldn't there be 614th mitzvah that we just haven't developed enough to, right? Like, there's no one like Moshe. But then that's a technical problem. No, it's a fundamental problem because Moshe being Moshe is a fundamental thing. It goes back to that. <laughs> the, 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 the criticism, criticizes a lot of things, but I'm bringing this one up. Okay, now, there is two ways to explain what the Rambam is getting at. Okay? So I want to be very clear. As a fundamental principle, once you move it out of the technicalities, like how would the Torah be changed to like substantively the Torah could not be changed, it becomes less, it becomes more controversial. Okay. Actually, at this point, Rabbi Yosef Abel does say, look, if God were to like, redo the event at Mount Sinai, like, I guess that would work, right? Because right? the event, if we had a second version of Mount Sinai, I mean, there's a reason to think we would, but if we did, then I guess that's how God would have to update the Torah if he were to do so. So God would kind of have to gather all the Jewish people at the mountain, right, and reveal to them that as one collective body that now there's a new appointed messenger, but it says, it literally says there will never be another Torah. But that, this is Rav Yosef Abu who disagrees with the Rambam. But the Rambam, okay. does, the Rambam thinks that it's not, the Rambam thinks that in principle this could never happen. That yeah. substantively could happen. So why? So there's two ways you could approach it. Okay? One way, I'm going to call the rational way, which is the, which, which is the way the Rambam... Um, discusses these ideas in the Guide for the Perplexed, which is a very important philosophical work that he wrote. And the other is using ideas of Kabbalah and Hasidus. Mainly Hasidus, but the ideas can be found also in Kabbalah. Okay. Now, I'm going to start off by pointing out there are many things that there are three things that we like, but you can't have all three. Start with a simple example, which is in business. In business, you would like to have your goods or services to be high quality, right? Mm -hmm. You would like to have them expedited now, right? You don't want to have to wait. And you would like to have them at low cost, right? If you are going to get something that's high quality and right away, what's almost always the case, it's going to be expensive. If you're gonna to wanna to reduce the price, you're probably gonna be foregoing quality or time, time right? See how that works? Many things are like this, mm -hmm. okay? Language, we want things to be clear. 
We want things to be thorough and we want things to be concise. But what's the problem? If you're concise and you're thorough, meaning you're covering everything, but in, in a very short amount of text or a short, short few words, are you being very clear? No, it's the power of a slogan, right? Or um, it's the, 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 the mission of the first compendium of oral Torah is written this way. It's concise and it's thorough. And what is that sacrifice? Clarity. Clarity. It's very terse, very ambiguous. The Chumash is like that, right? Now, you can make things very thorough and clear, but then what do you have to do? Make it long. See all those books, <laughs> right? Or you could just decide that you're being very clear and very concise, but you're not going to be thorough. You're just going to leave out a lot of stuff, right? You see how this works? You usually get two, you don't get the third. And you kind of have to pick. When we talk about God's commandments, there are three things. And what's the rule? You're going to have to sacrifice one. You don't get all three. Okay, number one. The commandments are permanent. Right? As, as we just learned in this principle, the commandments are permanent. They're everlasting. They'll never be changed. These are absolute truths. That's a good thing. Right? Okay, the, idea, the idea is that the, with the commandments being divine, if this is really God's will, this is really God's word, it should be eternal. Okay, that, that, that makes a certain kind of sense. We also want the commandments to be good for everybody. Right? We would like it to be the case that the commandments um, have a positive benefit to the person right? obeying them, right? You wouldn't want to think that you obeying God's commandment ultimately is bad for you, right? Mm-hmm. And what's the third thing we would like? We would like the commandments to be understandable, right? To be sensible. Good? Now, what's the rule? And we're going to have to sacrifice one of them. The last one. The Rambam sacrifices which one is God for the perplexed? Because we know he doesn't sacrifice... He says, these 613 commandments and this text, this is the ultimate truth. This is not going to change. Yeah, first one. So, that, so the, the commandments are going to be permanent and eternal, everlasting. So now, either he's going to say the commandments are not always so sensible, or the commandments aren't good for everybody. So the Rambam says quite explicitly that it is not the case that Keeping the commandments is good for everybody. And it just doesn't matter. Okay? In other words, like this. The Rambam's view is that every commandment makes sense. And every commandment you could, you could, at least in theory, understand why it's there. There's only one commandment the Rambam can't come up with a, with a basic justification for. But here's the thing. The commandment's importance does not always pertain to the individual. And sometimes observing the commandment achieves a benefit for the society as a whole at the expense of? The individual. The individual. Right, so then what definition of good is Rambam? Ah, so the Rambam says good is leading a society, which can be, using the use of Alba's expression, a society which produces the maximum number of people who are in the image of God. It sounds no, no, pr- no, not because produces about it. Produces, societies produce things. Yes, you, you didn't realize societies produce things? For instance, a society, a society that does not have an educational system to make sure that people are literate is going to produce how many scientists? I wouldn't say zero, but not a lot, not a lot right? Eight. Right? 
Okay? So the Rambam's view in this is that if you want to create a society that produces the maximum number of people who are in the image of God, the maximum number of people who live with an awareness of God and his transcendent truth, etc., 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 yeah? Ultimately achieving that maximum of human potential prophecy, well, this is the way to go about doing it. Does that mean every commandment is to the benefit of every person in that society? No. But sometimes, what do we do? We sacrifice individuals for the benefit of the whole. As, right, now he's not saying for the, so that everybody can feel good about themselves. That's not the idea. So let me give you like an example of this. Let's start with, um, why do we punish people? How is it good for the person who did something wrong to be punished? I didn't ask you that. I asked you, how is it good for them to be punished? What? That might be true, except that the Torah seems pretty comfortable with killing people as a form of punishment. Have you noticed that? It gets rid of the bad people. It's good for the people who are doing it, not for the people who are Yeah, yeah, it's pretty simple. So the Ram was like, you know, like, I think it's pretty straightforward. If you execute murderers, do you know what you instill into society pretty clearly? Don't fear to kill it. It's deeper than that. Oh. It's deeper. And this is actually why capital punishment is so important. Don't get caught. No. <laughs> that it is unacceptable. Something has to rise to a level of unacceptability. If, if, if you, on the one hand, have a value for individual human life, which the Torah does, so that's a caveat, right? If you have a society which has a value for the individual human life and then you are executing a person because they did something, what does that instill as a kind of a, a societal awareness? That whatever they did is so severe, it overrides the, 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 the sacred value of life. And that instills very clearly that that thing is completely unacceptable. So if you want to make nice guardrails around society, notice, by the way, not everything in the Torah rises to the level of capital punishment, right? What are some things that right? So murder, okay, that's kind of intuitive. Idolatry, that would be kind of important from the religious point of view, right? Because that's what it's all about, God, right? What are some other things that relies? Adultery. Right, many of the sexual transgressions, not just adultery, okay? Um, the Ramam actually says that, that, that there's a bit of a, an interesting calculus here because it's a combination of severity and likelihood of transgression. So something could be slightly less severe, but more, but more acceptable. And so, so, for instance, murder is far worse than a sexual transgression, according to the Rambam. But a sexual transgression is much more common. And so when you, when you weigh them together, they both, have, they both have an equal need to instill about how this is unacceptable, so but for slightly risk. different reasons, right? Right. If the risk is great yeah. because of the frequency or the risk could be great because of how serious it is, then those can kind of be able to be balanced between them, right? Okay. Um, what about violating Shabbos? Also kill, also kill people for that one. <laughs> it's like, yeah. that seems a bit extreme. Shabbos. That's what they say. That's in the, it's right in there in the book, in the scripture. In the Torah. He who violates Shabbos shall surely be put to death. They have to do it on Sunday, though. Do That's it. true. You can't do it on Shabbos. There's even the only story, the only story in the entire Chumash of someone being arrested and sentenced to death. 
Show you, there's two stories. One of two stories. Yeah, that's the second story. There's two stories. One person who curses God and one person who violates Shabbos. So, so wow. then like what? also, so, I guess, in a way, you're telling you it's not... It's a pretty serious thing, right? Shabbos, Shabbos violation completely unacceptable. So you ask, like, well, what's so bad about violating Shabbos? Why, does, why do we have to instill... Because, again, he's saying, we're, this person, we're going to kill him, which is not good for him, right? <laughs> what? Because we want to instill in everybody else how Shabbos is like, don't even think of crossing that line, right? Mm-hmm. Well, what's so important about Shabbos? God told us to do it. God told us to do a lot of stuff, and we don't kill people for everything. Well, it's very easy. It's like very common, I guess. Shabbos <laughs> is, sh- no, so this is the thing. Shabbos is all about a ritual that society is centered around, okay? Okay. Re- on the on, on the on the on the on the on the on the kind of family level, on the, the, the everybody you know in their own personal life level, not going all to the temple, centered around instilling what God created and runs the world. Mm-hmm. Every day, every week, what do we have to do? We have to stop. We are not allowed to do a bunch of stuff in order to instill within ourselves and our children and our communities that God created and runs the world. Right. And we have positive mitzvah to make a declaration about that on Shabbos. We call that Kiddush. Right? And people pick up on things and instill things much more from, as, than, than talking about abstract ideas when things are actually ingrained parts of the rhythm of life. And so when a person flagrantly violates Shabbos, what are they undermining? The integrity of that value. It's like the person who's, who's drilling the hole in the ship. And what happens? One Shabbos violated, another Shabbos violated, before you know it, Shabbos observance starts to wane. Now, does that happen overnight? No, it takes a generation or two, right? And once, just one second, once Shabbos observance starts to wane, what happens to our theological perspective? It starts to wane, and after five or six generations, you end up with Jews who? Aren't Jews. Forget what Shabbos is. Do they have a strong sense that God actually created and runs the world? No. And how, and how many holes do you need in a dam for the thing to eventually crack? That's, now, you, you might agree with the Rambam's explanation, you might disagree with it. That's not the point. The point is that he feels that this has can be explained, but you notice we're talking about the importance of the whole, of the community, and not just the community at one point in time, the community over time. Mm-hmm. And that means that for this person, maybe you know, the mitzvah of executing the Shabbos violator is not so great, but... Right? Now, some people are... I don't want to say, I'll let you ask questions. Some people are very comfortable. They find this very comforting, actually. Because they feel like, oh, I don't necessarily have to like, feel like every mitzvah speaks to me and every mitzvah is good for me and every mitzvah resonates with me. And I can just know that like, you know, yeah, sometimes you have to follow the rules because they're, they're overall good for society, they're overall good for the run, even though it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a sacrifice on my part. I mean, we have this principle in society at large and we have things like taxes, for example, right? The more, if, you make, if you're making a lot of money, you are not personally benefiting individually necessarily from the taxes in the same way the person who, who, who really relies on all the social infrastructure created by those taxes, but we have some sense to some degree that's appropriate. Again, the, the, the specifics of the argument are irrelevant. It's, it's just an illustration. And I, I'm picking one which is intense to show the point. But then that means that like, yeah, not everything that we do is supposed to be about, you know, my personal spiritual growth. But now you can say, since there is a fixed core of human nature, this is what the Ramah's point is, the Torah addresses what are the things that society would need to do in order to preserve the fundamental goal 
of creating people in the image of God over society as a whole, over time, based on fundamental human nature. And once that's what the Torah is, there's no place for it to change because human nature is what human nature is. But that does mean that a particular law at a particular time might not be particularly relevant. And, you know, we don't get rid of it because there will come a point to which that, that law will be needed. Some generations need certain laws and some generations need other laws. But overall, if you kind of take the big view of history, that's how it's going to work. So it's not for every person, it's not for every time, but we don't care because it's about the whole. Okay? But that's predicated on the fact that these things are addressing fundamental issues in human nature. Such as the fact that, for instance, ideas die very quickly when there isn't social structure around them. Okay. So I see some hands. People have questions. So let them ask the questions. Yes. I have two questions. One, why don't we keep all of these punishments? And two, is there punishment for not keeping so there's rules in the Torah for how to, how to perform the punishments. And in order to actually do any of the biblical punishments, you need um, the, the biblical court system in place. And we don't have that for a variety of technical so reasons. Yes, now, yes, yes. Now I could go in to say that it, 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 there's a, because of the immense value that Torah puts on, on human life, God also creates a lot of Restrictions so that it's actually very difficult to execute a person. Um, but that's not to downplay the fact that it actually did happen. And, uh, but it, that's why I added the word flagrant. You really would have to like be out there in a clear, I don't care, I'm going to violate Shabbos, even though, right, in order for that to happen. Someone who slips up, someone, but, but yeah, no, this idea that exists, I mean, you know. Um, there's a part of the oral Torah dictates that the authority of the rabbinic courts to execute people depends on the Sanhedrin being adjacent to the place where God's presence dwells based on a verse in, 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 the, in the Torah. And prior to the destruction of the temple, actually, it's not the destruction. Prior to the destruction of the temple, the Sanhedrin realized that executing sinners and criminals was not being administered fairly due to interference of... Um, People are politically connected to the Roman um, um, overseers. It's a long story. And so around 40 years or so before the second temple was destroyed, the Sanhedrin, the high court, actually moved out voluntarily from their chamber in the temple grounds, thus rescinding the power of Jewish courts writ large to execute people. Because justice administered unequally isn't justice. So there are no capital punishments? So there's no more capital. There's no more capital punishments, at least not carrying out the biblical punishments. There's some other... Aspects of Jewish law where still that portion could be applied. Um, when you say that we're at a much lower spiritual level, there's many reasons, but because we can't like, uphold to these high standards, yeah. that prevent corruption. Yeah, for sure. That's part of what leads to the exile, right? If it, these great sages are saying, we're, we are not confident that the actual justice has been being served fairly, we're, we're, we're stepping down from that. You know, we can't use a power you know, in the wrong way. Um, and then 40 years later, the temple's destroyed because of, you know, the amount of infighting, corruption. So it's a real it thing. Is, it seems backwards that being in exile leads to further exile. Um, so that's actually something that picks up on picks up on. I'll briefly just state the basic idea. Is that Hasidus says that there is, a, there is two kinds of spiritual sensitivity. There's spiritual sensitivity um, that um, comes 
from having an awareness of things that are higher than yourself. And there's a spiritual sensitivity that comes from an awareness that you have a core which, you're not, which is inviolable. And what happens as exile progresses is we, we, we yeah, we, we didn't have the first kind and that's why we ended up in exile. And as exile progresses, we lose it more and more and more. But it turns out if you keep chipping away at everything that can be chipped away at, you end up discovering the part that is invulnerable and can't be broken. And then that's how you get out of exile. It's like every like that the idea like you know is similar to although not exactly the same as the idea like that an addict has to hit rock bottom kind of thing right there's something that you can't go past but you have to chip everything to get there so it's like either you go this way or you go that way once you're going this way you kind of go all the way down until you can't go down anymore and then you go back up so okay that was the any other questions on this yeah I guess I still just like I feel like it's hard to understand why and I can. Right, so that's why we don't actually. They, all the punishments are outlined in the Torah. Okay. Yeah, God. In other words, that, that that's what the Ram is saying is that God is aware of which things are are require which degree of punishment to create that stability, which things are necessary for, right. for all time. But now that we don't keep pretty much like any of the punishments, how does the current modern like, Jewish society as a whole choose which mitzvot are more important? Um, I'll tell you the honest truth is that we don't. There's like a kind of individualism that has developed and then people kind of create societies around their individual comfort zones and then those societies after a generation rearrange because their children aren't on the same page and it's a very chaotic and um, it, that's a symptom of, of exile. You know, it's, it's, it's like when a person is lying in bed with a fever, right? And the question is, well, how, how, do you, how do you have the fever in a healthy way? You have to realize, like, the fact that you have a fever is already a sign that the body is fighting an infection. Like, there's already something unhealthy taking place. And, yeah, the fact that, that observance has, as we progress throughout exile, has become more and more a sense of personal commitment um, rather than just an absolute given to the awareness of God like it was, you know, the, that, that's a downside. On the other hand, there was clearly something flawed in that original way of doing things because we ended up into exile. Um, it, it's a broader discussion. I'll just simply say like this. Part of what the Raman would be saying is that the fact that the Torah outlines that the punishments can't be instituted in certain conditions is itself an awareness of when the punishments would be useful and when they wouldn't be. A society like ours Capital punishment would not work. There isn't enough communal acceptance of it as a such a significant thing. You see what I'm saying? Like, like so you, you have you have to. It, it, the Torah, when the Torah makes something a mitzvah, it also has a lot a lot of rules about when under what conditions. Okay, so it does. So I guess it just it's curious to me that like God would like outline like which. He does. That's why we have a written and oral Torah. It's just very right. involved. It's right. a lot of details. 
What the Rambam is just doing is saying, well, given these are the rules, how do they make sense? And he's making them make sense. My point is that he's making them make sense, but he's in no way attempting to make them meaningful or significant to each and every individual. Yeah, I guess it's more just like if, obviously, I don't think there's an answer for this, but like if God knew that we would have points of exile, like I'm guessing I'm surprised that there's not like a close, close notes for like, oh, when we're in exile, like here are the ones that are like, there are, well, there are, no, there are. There's why there's a bunch. There's a bunch of mitzvahs that don't apply during exile. Like for instance, the sabbatical, the, the sabbatical year doesn't apply biblically speaking unless the majority of Jews are living in the Holy Land. The jubilee year doesn't apply unless you have a temple. Um, the, the the punishments of the court require like he actually built in. So if you go through and don't just like do these kind of like chapter headings. There's a very clear distinction between what parts of the Torah should be practiced in exile and which ones shouldn't be. And so God's like, okay, if we want to preserve the Torah in a kind of its ideal form, you do this. If you're in exile, you do that. But the, the Rambam's point is like, that's not subject to updating or changing. That's all built in from the beginning. It's like, you know, I, I, as a parent, I know that like you do this in this situation, that in that situation. I don't have to revise every so often. Mm-hmm. The Rambam doesn't, is acknowledging there for a level of complexity. He's just saying that complexity doesn't ever need to be revised because that complexity takes into account the fundamental natures of human beings and the societies they create. But the point is, you, you will always find situations and people that they personally are not really benefiting from the commandments. Mm-hmm. Now, what would be the Hasidic approach? The Hasidic approach is every person benefits from the commandments. But now what do you have to do? You have to accept that sometimes how you benefit from the commandments is, not, is in no way obvious or explicable to a human being. Mm-hmm. You would have to go back and say somehow being put to death for transgressing Shabbos, using the same example, is somehow beneficial to the person being put to death. And you start having to evoke all sorts of spiritual layers of reality in order to make sense of that. That to me seems like it'd be more of a Shay's point of view. They're they're, they're both a Shay's point of view, because they're both saying the ultimate value is emulating God. The ultimate value is, is in reflecting God's truth. The question is, does that pertain to the level of every individual? And what, what what they're saying is, what they're saying is, and what the Rambam's position is, is because these things reflect either the core nature of human beings and societies they create, and therefore it's eternal, or it reflects the eternal connection that God has with people. That would be the Hasidic point of view. Therefore, it's never subject to change. It's never a utilitarian type of thing. It's, it's, it's something that's fixed either in the nature of human beings or in the nature of God, so to speak. But now there's a trade-off there. If you make it fixed in the nature of human beings, you have to explain how it relates to the nature of human beings. And the, way, the only way to do that is to sacrifice the idea that every mitzvah is beneficial to every person. And if you really want to make it um, beneficial to every human being, you have to root it in something that is very transcendent that we don't always fully understand. Okay? Um, and this, by the way, leads to some very interesting ways you can deal with it. Like, there's a lot of times you look at him and you're like, this just does not seem like, why is this good? And very often our question of why is it good is because we're focusing on the actual participants of the mitzvah. Uh, using the capital punishment because that's the most obvious. The person's being killed. And, the, and both the Rambam and the Hasidic point of view are saying, it is for sure good. You just have to zoom out. Do you zoom out and look at society? Do you look at the overall flow of history to see the good? Or do you zoom up into some kind of transcendent divine perspective? But if you just want to look at the things, you say, well, I mean, sometimes things aren't good for people. But what about this third one about being understand? Because there's things that we do that we don't understand. Give me one example. Like, okay, the mixing of the lens, we're talking about 
mixing wool and linen is um, an important way of distinguishing, uh, distinguishing ourselves from practices that are associated with paganism. Now, it's been a very successful mitzvah. Do you know why? When was the last time you heard of Jewish pagans? In other words, the whole wool and linen mixing thing had a very, was a very big deal in paganism. Nature, well, I mean, you see the Bill Cain Abel story, right? And so God sets up, God, and there's a reason for that, why people kind of went to, to the wool and linen thing. And therefore, all of these things that are these natural outgrowths of pagan practices, the Torah makes a very, very blanket ban on. And that creates a kind of a safe space in which monotheism can thrive. And the thing is, when you're in that safe space, you don't recognize what those walls are doing. So when you're in the safe space, you don't feel like, what's so bad about wool and linen? But once you're exposed to the way wool and linen was in, in the ancient world, and that's allowed to come back, and there I'm saying, The Rambam does through every single one except for the showbread. Wait, sensible or understandable? I'm so confused. It's the same thing. Which it's like we can understand why we're doing it, not that that we can understand the mitzvah. No, it's why the mitzvah. Yeah, why the mitzvah. Okay, that's yeah, why I was so confused. Yeah. Okay. The only one he why says he I doesn't have, can't think of a good reason is the showbread. I've just honestly been taught that there are so many things that we do that we don't understand. Yeah. Yeah, because so so the, 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 I mean. In order to do this, you have to look at the mitzvah in a very broad perspective. But once you do that, you can come up with pick any mitzvah. Pick any mitzvah. Now, what you end up doing, though, is that the more you want to make the mitzvah relate to each individual who's doing it, the more you want to make the specific elements of the ritual important, you're going to start needing to go to more and more, you know, spiritual stuff, and eventually going to get to a level like where we just can't fathom. If we want to say this is significant. Like the Ram is a great line about like, why do we bring one lamb in the morning and one lamb in the afternoon as the daily animal sacrifice? You know what the Ram's explanation is? Well, you need to have some parameters, right? <laughs> it doesn't really matter, but if you don't have any parameters, any, any, we all know this, any practice which is not clearly defined, what happens over time? It gets haywired. It gets haywired and it fades, right? If you're going to go to the gym, you're going to exercise, right? This, yeah, why do many people not exercise, right? Many people don't exercise because there's no practice of exercise. There's no practice of exercise. So what exercise should you do if you're going to start exercising? The answer is it doesn't matter. Pick one. Pick a realistic time. Pick a realistic frequency. And be consistent about it, Right? You'll get much more out of that than I'm trying to. So like, God's like, for whatever reason, animal sacrifices have their place. Okay. But if we want the ritual to stay consistent within its framework, serve its purpose, it needs to have some parameters. So God's like, you know, we'll do a daily, we'll do a morning lamb or an, an afternoon lamb. And the Ram says, and if God had decided two lambs, you would say, why is it two lambs? It doesn't really matter. So you can explain it. It's reasonable. Now, if I'm looking for the meaning in the single lamb, I have to get more and more spiritual, right? And there's a point at which humans' ability to understand divine perspective is going to go away. And that's the more Kabbalistic and Hasidic viewpoint. And then the Hasidic viewpoint is emphasizing is that if this is ultimately reflecting God's eternal truth to us, well, obviously it's never going to change. And the Rambam's point, the God reflects, if this is reflecting things that are fundamental to the nature of human beings and the societies they create, then obviously it's never going to change. But you end up with two very different flavors of Judaism, depending on which one you take. Are you grappling with transcendence? Or are you grappling with the fact that you as an individual or a, a particular individual ritual may not in and of itself be intrinsically meaningful? And it's only in the broader context. And, and, and 
where if you adopt the reverse of Albo, you can at least say that in theory, maybe at some point, this, the, you know, this will, gra- will graduate out of this. Um, but that idea is never caught on in Judaism. He, he says he doesn't come up, he can't come up with a good reason. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is that in Kabbalah, the only mitzvah that doesn't have a Kabbalistic explanation is the showbread. The bread in the temple. There was a table in the temple that had 12 loaves of bread on it that was put there every Shabbos and eaten the next Shabbos. Like, they sat there a week. Yeah, sat there for a week. Don't ask why. I just said that's the one mitzvah. I know the first thing my brain thought of was just that you just like, it's just now stale. They had, they had, well, first off, um, there's, they had special poles to hold it up so that it wouldn't, you know, so that we get enough circulation around so it wouldn't get all gross and moldy. Um, but it's actually worse because it was matzah. Like soup? No. It got even worse. Because matzah is dough that isn't risen. So it's, right, were you familiar with all, like, Thin, hard matzah. Yeah. Matzah doesn't have to be that thin or hard. That's what I was thinking. It's like matzah lava. is just... No, lafa. It's not like lafa. <laughs> okay. M- matzah is just where you don't let the dough rise before you bake it. And then you bake it quickly enough that it doesn't rise during the baking process. So, you know what matzah is like? You can make soft matzah. Pita. No. It's not like pita. Like pita. German bread. What? Pita rises. That's where you get the pocket from. Mm-hmm. It's Before like... Tea. Have you ever eaten dough? You ever like making challah and eating dough? No. You ever done that? Okay. You know that texture? Yeah. Yeah? Okay. Imagine that, but more solid. It is bad. It's very hard on your digestive system. It's really hard on your digestive system. There's a reason why we ferment dough. It's really hard on your digestive system. It's not at all pleasant to eat. That's why I was thinking maybe it's good for their digestion. It's bad for your digestion. Rising what, if, what if it sits there for a week though? Maybe it's like then, then it becomes really no. Then it becomes really hard. It becomes really really hard. Yeah. yeah. It says the Kohanim were often sick. Wasn't it? Wasn't that a miracle that saved fresh? It's a miracle that saved fresh. Why would you want to do something that makes all the Kohanim sick? I don't know. I'm not God. I was able to get connect the dots. Because he thinks that all the mitzvahs relate to things that are fundamental to human nature and how people create societies. And therefore, as long as human beings are human beings, these are the mitzvahs. I don't think that disproves uh, the No, because, 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 well, human beings will always be human beings. They're not going to become something else. No, 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 no. The Ram doesn't think human... The Ram... The Ram no, so, so the thing is like this. They're actually both in agreement that human beings don't fundamentally change their nature. It would come down to this, that the Rambam would understand that the mitzvahs relate to fundamental human nature rather than particular levels of societal achievement and development. And Rav Yosef Albo thinks that, no, human societies grow and develop and mature, which the Rambam would agree with, and therefore the mitzvahs relate to that level of our existence. So it's, they both actually agree with the idea that human beings fundamentally are what they are. They will never become something different. Well, that's the Rambam's view. The Rambam's view is that the, the mitzvahs relate to the fundamental nature of human, of human beings as human beings. The, okay. the Kabbalistic view is they relate to the fundamental truth of God. And the Vyos of Albo's view is that, well, no, they just relate to like what spiritual level human beings have attained at that particular point in history. 
And if you understand it that way, there's room theoretically for them to change. But if you understand them relating to the core nature of what human beings are, or the core truth of God, there's no room for them to change. But now, again, which of those you do creates, a, if you say they go to the core nature of human beings, you have to then explain them in terms of human beings and what human beings are meant to be. And you end up becoming a lot more socially focused rather than individually focused. But still, these are like assumptions of the future. No, this is all based on a larger worldview and understanding. I'm taking out a particular discussion from a larger perspective. It's the Rambam has a view that the fundamental nature of the world will never change um, because God doesn't change. And if God creates the world, then the, the basic structure of the world is fixed because that's what God decides it should be. And whatever malleability we see in it is not really fundamentally a change. Um, and Rabbi Yosef would agree with that point, that when we talk about the fundamental nature of beings, they're always the same. Um, this is, by the way, why the monotheism leads to science, is that the belief that if God is an unchanging being and he is the creator of the structure of the world, then the world has a fixed intelligible structure throughout that in theory can be discovered. Um, so. It's just that the Raman thinks that human beings aren't, a, aren't something that arises within the interaction of the world like, like modern science does, but are a fixed feature of existence. And if they were to not be fixed, would they uh, then you would have already a whole different problem because the Bible clearly describes as human beings be created as a fundamental feature of existence. The, the beginning of Genesis says that God creates light and he creates an earth and he creates plants. Like these are the fundamental features of existence as far as the creator is concerned. So you know, those are the building blocks that God, so to speak, builds the world out of. And plus I'm thinking too, we have texts about like, the world to come, or like Mashiach times, and we know that things are going to be different. So, so we have this statement of like, what we have now and what's going to be in the future, it's, there's never a statement that things are going to change in between them. So actually, the Rambam is very, very adamant that all the statements that indicate that the nature of the world is going to change are metaphoric. He's very adamant because of this theological principle. Um, and what's interesting, actually, is that in Hasidus, um, the Rambam's view is integrated into a literalism that if we were to understand that the world as described in the messianic era being very different is actually the kind of the true nature of things and what we're seeing is kind of an aberration, like a world in a state of sickness, then the Rambam's point that the nature of things doesn't change in the messianic era is still true and you can still take these things literally. Because the, the Rambam is making a very strong theological point. The idea that God creates a world with one structure and then just like willy-nilly changes the other structure, the structure of it later on, that, that, that creates very serious theological problems in understanding God. Uh, and he's willing to sacrifice the literalism of a lot of things um, in order to preserve that. Um, and there are people who disagree. They say, no, we want to preserve the literalism of those things. Um, but just to give you an example, um, if originally, going back to there was no carnivores amongst the animal kingdom, then the prophecy that there will be no carnivores when Mashiach comes or in the, after Mashiach comes could be A, taken literally, and B, understood as not a revising of the natural world that we're seeing now as some kind of a world in a, in a, in a, in a sick state. Now, that does not exactly reflect the Ram's actual position. But, so there's a, everything's embedded in other ideas. Um, but... 
the, the idea that human the idea that human beings at their core are fixed um, that's that's pretty fundamental to what the Ram explicitly thinks and then from the Kabbalistic and perspective is the mitzvah is reflecting God's divine truth and again you don't have to you don't have to have one or the other but they are different perspectives okay. um and there are a lot of things, there are a lot of things that sometimes when we look at a person and say, wouldn't it just be better if the halacha was different? And it's, I think it's important to know that there is an option, even as a fully devout believing Jew, to say, yes, for this person it would have been better if the halacha was different. They can give an exception. Maybe. No. Sometimes. I can give you controversial examples if you want. <laughs> um, but there almost always are controversial examples. And you could say, like, yes, it would be better if the halacha was different. But the damage that that would do overall to society throughout history doesn't justify it. And unfortunately, this person's personal quality of life or even their continued being alive will be sacrificed for that. And, and maybe the person can find nobility in that even. Now, you could always take the other route and say, no, this really is good for me in some deep spiritual way that I don't know, right? You could go that, right, and try and tap into that too. But I think it's important to know you have these two options. Because um, sometimes one works for one person and sometimes the other doesn't. Because I know people that have been stuck in situations and had to deal with things in there, and, and the Rambam's perspective really brought comfort to them. I know people the opposite that feels very demeaning in the, 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 the more spiritual perspective. So, yeah. If you, want all, if you want to be able to really understand how everything is good, good, you're often going to have to forego a level of specificity. And if you want to say every detail and every individual really matters, you're going to have to be willing to accept a level of transcendence. And yeah, we, we would prefer to have not have to have those trade-offs, but uh, for whatever reason, God made a world full of trade-offs. So those were the emotion, more emotionally heavy things. And I think the more you think about it, the more you'll realize that um, 